I've been grinding rookie mock drafts, scouring the internet for player profiles, looking at player models to see what their future projections are, to make sense of this mess that we have in the 2022 rookie draft class. The best players ended up in the weirdest positions, the most mid players ended up in the best positions, and so that leaves a lot of fans of these teams wondering uh, who who's going to pan out to be good, and that leaves Dynasty players wondering who should I draft, where is the value? And so I'm here today to make sense of the chaos. I'm your host, Abhi Gupta. You can catch me on Twitter at RealAbhiGupta, but more importantly, if you're watching this on YouTube, make sure to like this video and to subscribe to our channel so you don't miss content. And if you're listening to us on podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else, make sure that you are following this podcast so you don't miss anything. Now let's make some sense of the madness. Now, before we start, I need to give everybody a primer on how exactly I'm framing the structure and the rankings of the players in this video. So we gotta understand that there's a couple of different factors that we need to consider when we're evaluating all of these players. I have a list of three. The first is, most importantly, the player profile. So who is the player, how did we like them before the draft, and where did they end up landing? All of those things help us frame who that player is in relationship to their job in the NFL and what we actually think that they are gonna become. The second thing is market value. If the entire market is overvaluing a player that I really like, or severely undervaluing a player that I don't like, there has to be some sort of balance. I'm not going to overdraft a player, I'm not going to say that he's way higher than somebody else, just because the entire market has now caught on to the value that that player brings. And so, that actually leads to my third point, which is my job as a content creator is to be entertaining, but also, and more importantly, give you correct projections and analysis. You might not always agree with what I have to say, but my goal is to give you the tools to make the analysis that will help you understand the NFL and the players that you might be drafting way better. In fact, I did a poll uh, this week just because I was curious. You know, if you look back at, you know, a couple of years uh, and you look at the draft classes, some things are like really, really clear to us. We have an idea of, you know, who are the players that really panned out? Who are the players that busted? But of course, in hindsight, everybody wants to be right. But if you were to make the exact takes that panned out a couple of years ago, you would have been flamed for it. So I'll throw this poll up onto the screen. For my podcast listeners, uh, I'll read the, the poll out loud. So I said, I'm really torn on my rookie order after this draft. Projecting potential outcome is instrumental in how I value players, as I just said before. So my question is, in 2020 hindsight, would you still have liked to have taken Jalen Rager somewhere between the 8th and the 10th pick, so middle of the first round, and taken Jalen Hurts in the third round, according to ADP, at the time that we actually had these drafts? Or would you have preferred that a content creator like me would have told you to draft Hurts in the first round over players like Jalen Rager, who had first round draft capital? And of course, you know, the, these results are going to be a little bit biased. I mean, we know Twitter is a little biased. People aren't always, you know, the, the most truthful. But for the, the few of you who did answer this poll, the results indicate, okay, 81% of people say, yeah, I wish you had told me to take Hertz in the middle of the first round. And only about 19% of people said, please, uh, I would have, you know, rather you take Rager in the first round still, given that information that we have. Now, personally, I'm in the business of giving you the right advice. I'm in the business of making sure that you get your picks right and that you're evaluating players from all of the perspectives that you need in order to make an informed pick. I would have loved to have taken Jalen Hurts over Jalen Rager. That's not a question for me. And I think that's really how I'm thinking about this 2022 draft class, especially because the tiers aren't really that big. And the tiers that we do see, um, you know, it, it's all about how you project. If a player that would go in the third round this year ends up becoming a top 10 dynasty asset, I would rather have that player and over, quote unquote, overdraft them now than to have to pay the price later on for that player. Because we're trying to pick out and project what these players are going to do in the future. And well, that's what I'm trying to do here. Okay, so with that primer, let's jump into the big board. So the first overall player on my board is Brees Hall, running back out of Iowa, who was drafted to the New York Jets. Now, many people like Brees Hall. Brees Hall is kind of your all-purpose back. He showed that he can do it, you know, in college, 
in many different roles. Uh, he was a workhorse back. He'll be able to uh, see the receiving upside as well as the rushing upside. But of course, he's going to the Jets. Um, and so that's always kind of a, a question, you know, what's going to happen there? Um, are the Jets uh, going to utilize him properly? And, you know, when you also look at the backfield that he's in, he might end up having some cannibalization from running back Michael Carter, who might take some of the receiving upside from Brees Hall. Um, but all of those things said, I am a firm believer in talent over a landing spot because if you're not talented you aren't going to succeed it's kind of like this hierarchy right step one you got to have talent step two i look at landing spot step three if you have talent and landing spot then you're like the ultimate prospect we saw a classic example of this in 2020 a lot of people had deandre swift as the running back one in the class and when he ended up going to Detroit, a lot of people faded him. Uh, he became instantaneously the running back three uh, behind Clyde Edwards-Alaire and Jonathan Taylor. Meanwhile, Clyde Edwards-Alaire had been viewed as the clear-cut uh, running back three. But because he landed up in uh, Kansas City, people immediately shot him up. And in fact, some people drafted him over Jonathan Taylor. I mean, I remember in uh, one of the leagues that I was in, he, uh, uh, Jonathan Taylor, I ended up getting him at the 104 position um, because the guy in front of me took uh, Clyde Edwards-Alaire at 103. I think when you look at the players as entities and like projecting, you know, what they're going to do, they need talent in the landing spot. You can think of it as an accelerant of the talent that they already have. Worst case, you're going to get uh, a pretty high floor because they're so talented. They may not see, you know, the generational level of production, but you know that they're going to produce. Now, let's bring it back to Brees Hall. I still really view Brees Hall as the clear cut number one player in this draft class and it's really because of what he is projected to do now i'm going to be referencing the model that i'm about to talk about uh, throughout this episode um but this model was created by marvin ellican uh he's at ff marvin e on twitter if you want to follow him but his running back model takes in uh things such as draft capital production athleticism efficiency and he overall tries to understand like given your film score and given your athletic score given what the NFL says about you in terms of your draft capital and then adjusting your production based on your experience level right because if you're a freshman and you really really kick ass then you are more likely to just be innately talented versus someone who wasn't able to produce for the first two years but then was really able to produce their uh you know junior and senior year that's not as impressive as a freshman really kicking ass and so when he looks at Brees hall's profile um he very very clearly is the highest projected points per game player uh out of this entire draft class at 13.13 points per game projected between years one and three and he is like percentiles above everybody else uh, in terms of having a 95.44% percentile score where the next best player is at 83%. So it's really, really clear to me that Brees Hall is a player that I would consider like the safest player to go with in this draft class. And when you're looking at the value of the top player on the board, you want a player who's going to definitely produce at a high level and has the potential to hit another gear. Brees Hall is that guy. I don't even think you should hesitate. Take him 101. That brings us to the second player off my board, and this is going to be a bit of a different take from I think a lot of people's boards. I have Traylon Burks, wide receiver out of Arkansas who is now a member of the Tennessee Titans as my wide receiver one off of the board, second position overall. Now, why do I have Traylon Burks as my second player off the board? Well, I've just loved Traylon Burks' profile from the get. And all of my episodes uh, previous to this one have talked about how versatile of a player he is, which again means that he is going to have a higher floor than a lot of other players because no matter what situation he goes into, he has the potential to succeed. But, you know, when the Titans made the trade uh, to send A.J. Brown out to Philadelphia, um, it was kind of interesting because a lot of people started comparing Traylon Burks um, to be, you know, the next A.J. Brown. And 
you know, I'm, I'm not in a place to really speculate on whether he's going to become the next A.J. Brown, but I think a lot of the concerns that people have about Traylon Burks landing up in Tennessee is that, well, he's got Ryan Tannehill as his quarterback, and it's a rushing offense, and, you know, what 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 is a wide receiver going to do in that offense? And then... We just had A.J. Brown in that offense kicking ass, being, you know, uh, some people's wide receiver one in Dynasty. And Traylon Burks really is just going to be stepping into a vacuum, right, with the potential to, you know, realize uh, at least a part of what A.J. Brown was producing there. I mean, his competition is Robert Woods, uh, you know, and and Nick Ehin Westbrook, like, whatever. That's, that's not really, you know, something to worry about. Traylon Burks has a path to being the top wide receiver candidate on the team, and that inherently is signaled by the draft capital that was used, um, you know, in comparison and in conjunction with the move to trade um, AJ Brown out to Philadelphia. Now, the player model that Marvin uses um, really puts him, you know, very equivalent to a couple of other players in this draft class. Um, you know, when you break it up into tiers, uh, Traylon Burks is part of tier one, and there is like no statistical difference really between the projected points per game for all the players in tier one so this is really where your like personal bias can come in um and really help you determine like what is my wide receiver one off the board as long as it's one of the three players in the tier Traylon Burks Garrett Wilson and Drake London I think I really like Traylon Burke's profile also because of his receiving uh, yards market share. So he owned 36% of the total production that uh, um, Arkansas had in terms of receiving yards. And that's a lot, right? That's a very, very high threshold in comparison to the other receivers on the team. So it doesn't really matter to me if he's in a high passing volume situation. I think that Traylon Burks has the ability to capitalize. Now, one thing to caveat here is that a lot of people don't actually have Traylon Burks as their wide receiver one in this draft class. And so if you're navigating your boards and you see Traylon Burks, um, you might have the opportunity to grab him later on. But if I'm going in a vacuum just based off of player projections, Traylon Burks is the second highest um, uh, value player for me in this draft class. My third player off the board is someone who's really, really close to him in these rankings and is a lot of people's wide receiver one in this draft class. And that's Drake London, wide receiver out of USC, who ended up playing, uh, getting drafted by the Atlanta Falcons. Drake London, again, big-bodied receiver, coming off of an injury. Drake London uh, will probably recover just fine, and he is going to make an impact, uh, you know, playing for the Falcons alongside Kyle Pitts. Now, in last week's episode, I talked about what I really like in terms of Drake London and Kyle Pitts and potentially Calvin Ridley coming back with a quarterback coming in who actually has the potential to maximize all of these receiving targets. Is it Desmond Ritter? Who knows? But it might be a quarterback next year that they draft if Atlanta doesn't end up doing much this season. And I think that that's really exciting because Drake London, uh, when you look at his pro uh, prospect profile, uh, he's projected to have 11 points per game um, between, year, between years one and three, which is the same as Traylon Burks and Garrett Wilson. And his percentile score is smack dab right there with those other guys. So if you are a fan of bigger receivers who have uh, demonstrated collegiate success, um, who are a in, in offensive coaches, uh, a scheme, right, in terms of Arthur Smith down there in Atlanta, um, and, and Drake London being the first wide receiver off the board this season, um, I don't think you can go wrong. I do think that if you want Drake London, you have to be careful in your drafts because you need to go and secure the bag. You need to trade up for him if you're anywhere below the third pick. So there's a potential that someone's going to double up on uh, a running back or somebody might uh, go one, one running back and one wide receiver. But for you, if you want Drake London, I think you got to move up to grab him based on the market sentiment um, that, that so many people are taking him somewhere between the second pick and the third pick overall in the draft. Number four on my board is Kenneth Walker, running back out of Michigan State who was drafted by the Seattle Seahawks. Why do I have Kenneth Walker way lower than, uh, you know, a lot of people have him, which is around the first or the second pick in the draft? Well, the reason is quite simple for me. I have not seen 
a lot of receiving upside from Kenneth Walker produced in his collegiate career. He may have the ability, but he has not produced the statistics that indicate to me that that necessarily will happen. So when you put him in Seattle's offense, right? Granted, it's Pete Carroll's scheme, which means that they're going to run the ball a whole bunch. Now they don't have Russell Wilson, which means that I bet that they're going to run the ball even more because they don't want to be putting the load on whoever amongst Geno Smith or Drew Locke ends up getting that uh, quarterback position. So they're going to end up running the ball a lot more. Now, we have no news right now about Chris Carson. We know they have Rashad Penny. Uh, we know that there's DJ Dallas there. We know that there's Travis Homer there. And now they have Kenneth Walker. And Kenneth Walker has the draft capital, but he is in a pretty crowded backfield. Um, that Rashad Penny really took over towards the end of last year. So there are some question marks in my mind about what happens to his opportunities in Pete Carroll's system. Now, if you were to take all of that consideration to the side, I also am very, very concerned about the, the makeup of the Seattle offense without Russell Wilson. Let me put it this way. Very simply, if I know that your passing game is not a threat to me, I am going to target as a defense the part that could hurt me. And so Kenny Walker on a team that has even an average pass game has the potential to really kick ass uh, if he has you know, the ability to leverage uh, the threat of a quarterback using play action or whatnot. But if we know that Geno Smith or Drew Locke isn't actually going to be a threat to um, you know, a, a defense, I can expect them to load up the box. And so what does that mean for his production? Well, he might overcome that and still do really, really well, but he has a lot of different factors that will take time to shake out. And so when I look at the immediate returns of Kenneth Walker, I think that he will eventually become the running back one of the Seattle backfield. That's no question to me. How long? I don't know. If you remember Jonathan Taylor's rookie year, it took him the full year to actually get to a point where he was the main person with carries. And honestly, it took the start of last year for us to be like, okay, Marlon Mack is not a threat, right? Jonathan Taylor owns this backfield. If you look at all the love that we had for Javante Williams, Javante, we love him. We still think he kicks ass. When he did get the majority of the hand uh, uh, handoffs, uh, he did do really, really well last season. But Melvin Gordon is coming back. And so now we're kind of wondering, well, what is the maximum amount of opportunity that Javante is going to get in that offense if he has to continue sharing the backfield with another volume back? And so... I think that when I look at what Kenneth Walker is, I think that he's just going to take more time to pay out, and he's a clear tier below um, Brees Hall. According to the player model, um, his points projected is 2.5 full points less than Brees Hall. Remember, Brees Hall was at 13.13 points. Kenneth Walker is at 10.6 points. So they, he's still going to produce really well, but he's not going to be an elite running back, especially given all of those factors. So I think that we need to take uh, Kenneth Walker's profile with a grain of salt, understand that he may end up paying out, but it will take time. And so with that uncertainty and that risk with his profile, he is the second running back on my board, fourth overall. Number five, we come to... The Buckeye, Garrett Wilson, wide receiver out of Ohio State, who was drafted by the New York Jets 10th overall. Now, I think that Garrett Wilson is like the clear-cut wide receiver one in the Jets offense. And that's wonderful because now as you see this team shaping out, you got Zach Wilson, you got Brees Hall in the backfield, you got Michael Carter as a running back too, you had Elijah Moore, you already had Corey Davis, and now you bring in Garrett Wilson. Now, Corey Davis is the only large-sized receiver on that team, um, you know, comparatively speaking, big-bodied and whatnot. But Garrett Wilson is the wide receiver one on that team until he proves otherwise. And so I think that that really bodes well because now as the team rounds out, Zach Wilson enters year two, um, he's the one who's going to be getting, you know, the majority of the volume, at least if he pans out the way that we think he should. Now, again, the player models tell us, hey, he is like smack dab in the wide receiver one conversation. Um, he's projected at 11.02 points. Um, again, the same thing as Traylon Burks and, and Drake London. And um, 
his percentile score is literally up there too at 95.07%. So when I look at what Garrett Wilson could do for the Jets offense, well, we're looking at a burner, we're looking at an acrobat, we're looking at a guy who has the ability to really stretch the field. And, you know, the more weapons you have, the better that, uh, you know, the, the, the quarterback is able to, you know, complete throws because, you know, the defense has to account for those receivers. And then just based on the talent of the receivers, they're able to catch more of those, you know, 50-50 balls. They're able to catch and adjust to passes that are a little bit wobbly or a little bit underthrown, a little bit overthrown. Garrett Wilson will have that potential in this offense. And when you also consider the fact that Mike LaFleur, who is the offensive coordinator for the Jets, came to the Jets with Robert Sala from uh, San Francisco where they were playing or coaching under Kyle Shanahan, I really think that now that you add these other types of receivers uh, who are burners, who have the ability to uh, really lay punishment, that have the ability to stretch the field, you're really going to start seeing what the San Francisco offense was brought over to East Rutherford, and perhaps the Jets could have something cooking here. Not a playoff team yet, in my eyes, but a team that is now offensively potentially going to be able to produce, especially now that Mims is no longer on the field, and now you have a, a top three of Garrett Wilson, Elijah Moore, and uh, Corey Davis. Number six, the first quarterback off the board, Kenny Pickett. I don't like the quarterback class here, um, and I feel like you know, this was a really pivotal pick because if the Steelers had gone with Malik Willis, I think all of us unequivocally would have taken him first overall on the board. But since Kenny Pickett was the first quarterback off the board at 20th, and we know that Kenny Pickett kind of has a lower ceiling uh, because he's, you know, a five-year starter and, you know, he has the experience, but he really didn't pop until last year. Um, I think that what you're looking at with Kenny Pickett is a lower ceiling kind of like best case he's like a he's like the 10th best quarterback in the league type of quarterback um if if he really really pans out but given the draft capital that they used uh to get Kenny Pickett and given the fact that well rest in power Dwayne Haskins um you know he's not there anymore and uh, Mason Rudolph never really was an option. Uh, Kenny Pickett, assuming he doesn't screw it up, is going to be the starter for Pittsburgh for the duration of his contract. I mean, that means that at the minimum, we have a four to five year window. If you look at someone like Daniel Jones, he got four full years. They declined his fifth year option, yes, but Daniel Jones got four full years of starting for the Giants. And so when you look at Kenny Pickett, well, his receiving options are way better, right? We're talking about uh, Deontay Johnson. We're talking about Chase Claypool. We're talking about Najee in the backfield. We're talking about them drafting uh, George Pickens. Um, we know that the Steelers are a wide receiver factory. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, when you add in, you know, a more youthful quarterback, you add in kind of the structure around him. Kenny Pickett has a, a very decent floor. But I don't think that he's going to ever end up being a quarterback that we're going to be like, this guy is a bona fide number one uh, quarterback in fantasy or in the NFL. He's always going to be quarterback four in the AFC North. He's never going to be better than Lamar Jackson until Lamar's on his decline. He's not going to be better than Joe Burrow. And I don't think that he's better than Deshaun Watson. So you know that you are going to be getting a pretty mid quarterback. I'm, I'm not selling him here, right? But I, what I'm trying to point out is that given positional value, you are getting a four-year starter. And if you were to get the first quarterback off the board at the sixth overall pick in your rookie drafts, this is a slam dunk. You should be taking Kenny Pickett if he falls beyond the fifth pick. That is a no question to me. If he's on the board, take him. These quarterbacks appreciate. One year from now, he will be worth more than the sixth overall pick in a rookie draft. If you like the player, keep him. If you don't like the player, his value appreciates. Inherently, because there are only 32 quarterback spots, of which only like, I would say 15 of them are quarterbacks that teams are really sticking with. And so now you have comfort that Kenny Pickett is going to be a starter for four years. Number seven on my big board is wide receiver Chris Olave out of Ohio State. Now the Saints took Chris Olave as the fourth receiver off the board with the 11th overall pick. And they spent a lot of draft capital to get him. Um, you know, you, you might remember that ridiculous trade with the Eagles where they, they traded a bunch of picks in order to get Chris Olave. 
uh, or, or rather to move up into uh, the first round. And then they did another draft day trade in order to move up to the 11 spot to go and snag Chris Olave. And that was really when the like wide receiver run started on the board. And I think that's a really strong signal for how the Saints organization views Chris Olave. But what's he walking into when he goes to the Saints uh, locker room? Well, I think he's walking into a pretty barren wide receiver landscape because, you know, there's really no one to compete against him because Michael Thomas is injured and he's been so for the better part of uh, two years, right, with all of the injuries that he suffered. And I think that Michael Thomas, um, you know, even when he returns, is he going to be at the same you know, level of, uh, of production and talent and skill that he was during that incredible record-setting season. We don't know. I also don't think people like Deontay Harris or Traquan Smith or Marquez Calloway are going to be threats to Chris Olave's production, especially considering what those three did last season without Michael Thomas for the full season. Um, Jameis is coming back, and we know that Jameis, uh, you know, he's not uh, as as up and down as he was during his Bucks years, where he had the 30 touchdown, 30 interception season, but we definitely know that he, um, you know, in Sean Payton's final season with the Saints, was a more reserved version of himself. He wasn't committing as many mistakes, but as a result, he also wasn't throwing as much, um, and I think that that, you know, really reduced the volume that you would expect to see in that offense. However, as we talked about with Traylon Burks, uh, even if a, an offense has, you know, more of a rushing lean, has a lower tier quarterback, we do know that the wide receiver one in that offense will eat, especially if they are uh, alpha, elite, talent, whatever word you want to use. Chris Olave, when you look at his profile from Ohio State, I would have felt a lot more comfortable making that claim in uh, 2021 if he had come out as an early declare, as a junior, as someone who was the wide receiver one on that respective team. But no, he stayed one more year and he ended up being a, 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 a senior declare. He ended up being someone who uh, was a wide receiver two to Garrett Wilson on that team. And I just don't feel like he has, you know, that, that, that top tier production that you would expect to see from those receivers that we've seen over the last couple of seasons. Now, if we turn our eyes over to the rookie wide receiver model, uh, we see that Chris Olave is, you know, the fourth best uh, wide receiver according to the model and he's very clearly in his own tier as a tier two player so you have the first three guys that we've been talking about but then Chris Olave has about a half point less points per game projection at 10.55 so what this tells me is that Chris Olave has uh, the draft capital to have staying power in that offense but based on the, the all of the evaluation that I've looked at for his prospect profile I really do think that he will see most of his production uh, if he's able to have a true bona fide wide receiver one complimenting him and his game uh, while uh, you know while in that Saints offense so I do think that also when you're looking at the the, the types of receivers that you'll be picking uh, in the middle of the first round we are now seeing an increased risk profile with all of these receivers. I mean, you're, you're picking from guys like Chris Olave, uh, Jamison Williams, Jahan Dotson, Sky Moore, George Pickens, you know, Christian Watson. And when you look at all of these guys, I think Chris Olave gives you the most certainty out of all of those player profiles, considering that he had multiple years of production uh, in college at a D1 school, at a top tier program like Ohio State. And you know, worst case, he's going to be a lower tier wide receiver one until they find someone who is the bona fide guy for that offense. At the seventh overall pick, I feel like he is probably your best bet considering the receivers, the uh, running backs, tight ends, and quarterbacks on the board. I'll go Chris Olave here. And so that brings us to the eighth pick. And increasingly, that risk goes up and up and up. And here I am at number eight going with Jamison Williams. Jamison Williams has the draft capital that a lot of these other guys don't. Jamison Williams had the 12th overall pick used uh, to select him. Uh, he went to the Lions and he's going to a team where, you know, Amon Ross St. Brown uh, really showed himself to be an NFL, you know, uh, talent, right? Last season going off with Jared Goff. This offseason, they went and got uh, DJ Chark, who um, many people view as like a faux wide receiver one. And then now here comes Jamison Williams after a stellar year at Alabama, which many people believe, you know, if he hadn't gotten injured in that title game, he probably would have uh, helped Alabama win another national title. But of course, course, you know, we are expecting somewhere between an eight and 10 month timeline for him to return. 
which means Jamison Williams isn't going to be returning to the Lions uh, probably before, you know, like week six at the very earliest. Now, this is a long-term evaluation, so I'm not super worried about, you know, his his turnaround time in terms of his career. ACL injuries at this point, where when we're talking about modern medicine, is something that uh, players are able to recover from a lot easier, a lot faster compared to even 10 years ago. But what concerns me again about Jamison Williams is the fact that he produced and really popped one year. He couldn't beat out wide receivers at Ohio State for the first two years. He didn't get any meaningful playing time. But then when he moved over to Alabama and really didn't have any competition in that room, he really showed himself to be, uh, you know, a top tier uh, receiver for the Crimson Tide. The prospect model tells us that Jamison Williams is a tier below Chris Olave, uh, you know, uh, looking at the fact that he is another half point below Chris Olave's point per game. So tier one was around 11 points per game, Chris Olave was at about 10.5, and Jamison Williams is sitting at under 10 at just about 9.9 projected points per game. And I think that that, you know, makes sense, right? I think that the Lions have a lot of wide receiver twos on their team uh, in, in Chark, in Amon Ross St. Brown, and now in terms of Jamison Williams. And I do think that, you know, I'm not going to discount his production from his junior year as a reason not to draft him or that he will bust. But I definitely think that like when you even look at what Devonta Smith did last year, um, he produced, right? He didn't fail, but he was not producing at the same clip that like a Jamar Chase was. I think Jamison Williams is someone who's going to produce at the NFL level. I think that he will be someone who you want to roster, definitely. But I don't think that Jamison Williams is a wide receiver one in that offense. I don't know who is, honestly. And he's going to be sharing targets with a lot of other guys um, on that team with Jared Goff as the quarterback. So I think... Jamison Williams will have, you know, a, a fine NFL career. I view him as a wide receiver too, and that's what you're getting here with the eighth overall pick. But you know that that draft capital means something because he, you know, an NFL team is investing so much energy, time, money into this guy that he, at the very least, will have many chances to show off what he's able to do. So eight picks into the draft, we have already picked uh, so many wide receivers, and I think that that really speaks to kind of the, the the distribution of wide receivers in this draft class. You have a couple of guys who are like really good, and then a lot of guys who you know kind of mix in with one another. You gotta really evaluate each of these guys based on their talent and their landing spot, and then your own personal opinion about what that means and what that will translate to, um, you know, going forward into the NFL. And so with the number nine pick, you know, you have a lot of choices here. You could go QB, you could go wide receiver, you could take a running back. But I personally am sticking with wide receiver here, and I'm going with Sky Moore with the ninth overall pick out of Western Michigan. Now, the Chiefs, when they drafted Sky Moore um, on day two, Sky Moore's value in the community skyrocketed, right? This guy, people fell in love with the fact that he ended up with the Chiefs, and we always see this market overcorrection. Look at Clyde Edwards-Alaire. Look at how people hold on to Miko Hardman. You have someone on the Chiefs offense. They just assume that they're going to absorb Patrick Mahomes' greatness, and they're going to become you know the next th best things in sliced bread. And that's where I really want to put a little bit of... Um, Put, put the brakes on a little bit to understand what Sky Moore could be. So we know that he played at a uh, lower tier school at West, Western Michigan, right? Um, he has uh, a lot of name recognition from folks who have been looking at the draft process, and clearly the NFL likes him if they're taking him in the second round. Um, but when you look at the, the totality of what the Chiefs have on offense, I think that this leads to a really interesting question. So they've got Travis Kelsey, um, who, you know, I don't think he's going anywhere. Uh, I think he's going to continue producing for a while. Um, they just traded away Tyreek Hill. So that opens up a lot of the offense um, for good or for bad. Um, and then they signed Juju Smith-Schuster, um, which should be, um, you know, somewhat of a replacement value um, for Tyreek Hill. I mean, Juju is no Tyreek, but you are going to get uh, a lot of production out of a very young wide receiver. And so Sky Moore comes in and I immediately, 
legitimately think that he is better than Mecole Hardman in that offense. So if you really want to look at Travis Kelsey as a wide receiver, and then you look at Juju Smith-Schuster, you're looking at Sky Moore as a wide receiver three in that offense. And the player model really does look at him kind of in the same tier, a little bit lower than Jamison Williams because of that risk, right? The unknown of, you know, how does his play translate to the NFL? We did see that, you know, when he played in the NFL uh, or when he played in college, he had, um, you know, a, a pretty decent uh, receiving uh, yards market share. Looking at my notes, he has about a 33% receiving yards market share, which implies that he really dominated the receiving yards in his own offense. Um, uh, the same offense, you know, that D. Eskridge was in last year uh, that the Seahawks took, um, you know, old D. Eskridge, uh, you know, uh, gr grandfather Eskridge, as, as a lot of people on my Twitter feed were, were calling him. Uh, not not to be confused with nursing home Najee, but uh, enough with the jokes. When you look at Sky Moore, he was able to produce 33% receiving yards market share. And I think that that bodes well for his ability to eat in the Chiefs offense. But I do think that we got to hold, we got to, we got to like uh, hold off on, on calling him like the next Tyreek or, or viewing him as a bona fide wide receiver. One, um, that I've honestly seen on some Twitter threads and is kind of blowing my mind. Sky Moore will produce, he has risk, and he's a player that I think has the potential to eventually be a very, very reliable player uh, in the Chiefs offense. Something that Mecole Hardman could never do. You could kind of view like what the Mecole stands thought he was going to become in the Chiefs offense, but never materialized. I think Sky Moore has a way better chance of actually seeing that through. And so when you look at the ninth overall pick and all of your options on the board, I like the upside that I'm looking at with Sky Moore in comparison to everybody else. There is opportunity, there is a need. And we know that there are signals, although weaker than the other wide receivers, for Sky Moore to produce with the Chiefs. And so I'm taking him here at number nine. Number 10, I'm going with Christian Watson, wide receiver out of North Dakota State, who went to the Green Bay Packers. Now, what you're seeing across all of these wide receiver conversations is what is the opportunity? And there's no team that has a wide receiver opportunity like the Green Bay Packers. They just traded away Devontae Adams, who uh, many people would consider the top wide receiver in the NFL. And... Devontae Adams being gone, you have, you know, that whole narrative that, who who does Aaron Rodgers trust now in that offense? Who is he going to throw to? He's, you know, you're looking at guys like Marquez uh, Valdez-Scantling, you're looking at guys like Alan Lazard, you're looking at guys like... Um, uh, Randall Cobb, a very old Randall Cobb. Robert Tunyon is going to be coming back from an ACL injury. And now you have Christian Watson entering the fold. Uh, not not to forget uh, Amari Rogers here, but Christian Watson now enters the fold with second round draft capital. And I think that when you look at how the Packers draft, any Packers fan who is really up to date with the team will tell you that, look, the Packers love guys who have talent but then also have incredible athleticism because if you have that talent and you have that athleticism they have a lot of grounds to develop those players I think this, this is exactly what they liked with Devontae Adams when they drafted him uh, somewhere in the mid uh, 2010s when you have a player that has a lot of raw like athleticism you can teach him if he already has some of the knowledge and and has demonstrated the ability to dominate in college um how to be a successful nfl wide receiver now why haven't they done that with any of the wide receivers that aren't Devontae adams couldn't tell you but this is the rationale that a lot of Packers fans will give you around why Christian Watson is really going to slay. Uh, he had a very high RAS score, a raw athletic score, score, and when you look at his dominator rating, he had a 44% dominator rating at North Dakota State, which, you know, is pretty incredible, you know, put, put the FCS stuff aside. If I want to understand what Christian Watson could be in the Packers offense, Let's just begin with that he will not be Devontae Adams. 
he still needs to earn the trust of Aaron Rodgers and he needs to really, you know, round out more of his game, but he's got the raw talent there. And so I think that don't expect Christian Watson to become, you know, the wide receiver one in that offense. I think that there's a lot of mess there for Aaron Rodgers to really figure out who he's going to be relying on. Um, I think that there's <clears throat> a lot of hard questions to ask there. And if you look at the overall draft that the Packers had, I do think that they are going to be leaning more into their run game with AJ Dillon and Aaron Jones uh, because of the nature of how how the assets kind of, uh, you know, uh, came out, you know, um, going defense heavy in the first round, getting two very, very freak athletes, and then getting another one here in the second round. Now, the player model says that Christian Watson is uh, even more, you know, of a lower tier than Sky Moore. So Sky Moore was at 9.69 projected points per game. Christian Watson is projected to have 8.25. So now we're talking like a full magnitude. This is like all, more than 10% uh, projected less for Christian Watson in his first three years, which implies to me that there is, again, increased risk with his profile. But then on top of that, um, for him to kind of supersede that, he is going to need to fill out out in ways that this probabilistic model is telling you could happen, but isn't one of the majority paths. Um, I do think that Christian Watson over the next couple of years could round out to become a really good wide receiver in that offense, but we're playing with a lot of hypotheticals. We're playing with a lot of ifs. We're playing with a lot of, you know, when this happens, which is never guaranteed. I mean, for all we know, Aaron Rodgers is not going to be the quarterback for the Packers in two years. Uh, the GM of the Packers himself said that we don't view our deal with Aaron Rodgers as a multi-year deal. We view it as a sequence of one-year deals. And that's because we don't know what Aaron Rodgers wants to do. He changes his mind every five minutes. Um, Sometimes I love my front office, sometimes I hate the team, uh, I, I want to go here, I want to do that. So really, there I don't know what the certainty is around the situation for quarterback for Christian Watson. Um, if Jordan Love steps in, what does that mean for his upside? Who knows? A lot of questions, but... If you like the risk and you want to take a chance on a guy who could become something really awesome, but you're willing to put in the patience to see what he could become, this is a great place to take Christian Watson. It's time, baby. With the 11th overall pick, I would take Malik Willis, the third round quarterback out of Liberty that was taken by the Tennessee Titans. Why am I taking Malik Willis here? Well, let's just put it this way. I have felt from the very beginning that Malik Willis has... QB1 potential. If the Steelers had taken Malik Willis with the first with their first round pick, I believe that Malik Willis would have been going 101. Now now let's be frank. Malik Willis is a third round quarterback, right? The NFL, many teams passed on him several times over. QB needy teams passed on Malik Willis several times over. And the Titans took him after, you know, they traded up to grab him in the third round. But if you look at the history of successful third round quarterbacks in NFL history, this is the notable list of quarterbacks. Russell Wilson, who is the, the example everybody will go to. Nick Foles, Matt Schaub, Josh McCown, Jacoby Brissett, Mike Lennon. That's not probabilistically something that I find great. But we also know that there are outliers. So the question becomes, what do you do with a quarterback like Malik Willis? Well, when I look at what's on the board and my own player projections, I think that Malik Willis has the upside and the opportunity to be a Jalen Hurts type of value and in several years, you could be regretting not taking him this early in the draft. And it's not really that early either. It's the 11th overall pick, right? At this point, my board has players like Rashad White, James Cook, Isaiah Spiller, none of the tight ends, maybe Desmond Ritter, and then you got like Wandale, George Pickens, John Mechie. I'm looking at upside here. With the 11th pick in any sort of draft, you are now looking for upside, despite the risk. You have assumed risk with all of those players. And Malik Willis has the dual threat ability. 
if he has that opportunity in a place like Tennessee, I think that he will be a Jalen Hurts type player who will have so much upside for fantasy players and for the Titans organization. I mean, we know that the 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 Titans are not going to keep going with Ryan Tannehill. We know that they have seen enough, they've thanked him for his time, but they know that they have hit their ceiling with what they can do with Ryan Tannehill. Otherwise, they would not have traded AJ Brown, and otherwise they would not have moved younger at both wide receiver and quarterback. Now, what's the turnaround time for a player like Malik Willis to actually start playing? Well, you got a couple of situations, right? If Ryan Tannehill gets hurt, which we're not hoping for, but if he does, Malik Willis will be starting. If Malik Willis develops, you could see him starting in a year from now, or if he takes more time, maybe two years. So you have a long runway. I really think that this could end up being like a Lamar Jackson type situation, or it could end up being like a Jordan Love situation. Lamar Jackson, where he's starting by the end of the year because the, the veteran that was there was underperforming or got injured, but it could also be like Jordan Love, where Malik Willis doesn't actually round out to be the player that the organization thought, and as a result, they're going to have to pay Ryan Tannehill a boatload of money in order to stay, but when I look at the upside, right, I think that what Malik Willis could be is something that I want to take a chance on with the 11th overall pick especially considering positional value, because even if Malik Willis doesn't start all of this year, in one year, if he hasn't played, I believe that he will have appreciated value compared to where you're taking him right now. Like, let's use an example, right? So a lot of people were taking Trey Lance at 102 or 103 last year. We know that there are reports out there that the 49ers are a bit skeptical about his, or, or they're not skeptical, they're they're underwhelmed by Trey Lance's play. Would you trade the second or the first overall pick in a draft for Trey Lance today? Well, if I'm comparing Brees Hall and I'm comparing Trey Lance, I would take the Trey Lance side. So yes, I believe that the value of the quarterback who hasn't really played, who even has kind of negative media for him has appreciated now the longer you go the more concerns there are right so you hit the two-year point and someone like jordan love now starts to cause a lot of concern but when i look at a guy like malik willis in one year from now he will be more worth more than the 11th overall selection in a big board and i think that that really means that if you have the opportunity to draft him you should do it especially here with this positional value with the players on the board, you won't regret it. Finally, with the 12th pick in my big board, I'm going to go with George Pickens, wide receiver out of Georgia, who was picked by the Pittsburgh Steelers. George Pickens is a very controversial player. We know he's talented. We know he was injured for a big portion of his career, but we also know that when he played, Georgia did well and he did produce during you know his time uh you know in the Georgia offense with a very weird QB situation he scares me as a prospect because of his uh um you know, just, just all of the things that you hear about George Pickens, uh, you know, mentality about playing the game. Um, you hear a lot of reports about him not being kind of like a friendly guy, not being someone who's like really committed to the game. And the question becomes, you know, if, if you told me like Jamar Chase, right, has a bunch of talent, um, but he doesn't put in like the extra mile or something. A lot of players end up having really successful careers doing stuff like that, right? They may not have elongated careers. They may not have careers that could have been, you know, Larry Fitzgerald or Jerry Rice length careers, but we definitely know that players have gone just off of their laurels and been successful in the NFL. But George Pickens was taken, you know, in one of the later rounds. And I feel like that causes me to have some concern but why don't we look at the flip side where again there's opportunity here so we know that pittsburgh develops their receivers so well going all the way back to like heinz ward you go santonio holmes you go to like mike wallace you go to juju smith schuster you go to antonio brown like a very very long list of successful wide receiver development and if you look at the receivers that they have today so they let go of juju they now have Deontay Johnson, who I love, and then they have Chase Claypool and who 
James Washington left, right? Juju left. George Pickens steps in. If he puts in 50% effort, he's the wide receiver three on that team. And we know that given, you know, Ben's history, Ben Roethlisberger's history on that team, even in his decline, those receivers ate. All three of them were dynasty assets that people really, really liked. And I think that George Pickens, you again are, are taking on a lot of risk, right, around that player profile. But the upside is that, well, they already have a very moody, very weird, very, uh, very, in my opinion, unlikable guy like Chase Claypool. But George Pickens might be more talented than Chase Claypool. He just might be. People liked George Pickens coming out of college, right, for his athleticism and his talent on the field. I would say that Chase Claypool was generally faded by a lot of people, right? And yet he still performed, produced, and is, you know, the wide receiver too. Some would argue the wide receiver one on the Steelers offense. George Pickens has the ability and the opportunity to be equivalent, if not better, and supersede Chase Claypool in that offense. I can guarantee you that if the Steelers had an option, uh, a wide receiver two option that was equivalent or better than Chase Claypool, they would move off of him because they don't want to deal with his antics. Even though they have a history of wide receivers with antics, they they eventually did move off of Antonio Brown. You can totally see uh, Chase Claypool, um, you know, media clipping his way out of Pittsburgh. And all of that really just points out that George Pickens, um, he, he has a pathway here, right? And that's what I'm trying to hit on. The player model really does view him as a tier three slash four player in this draft class. He's projected to have a 9.04 um, points per game between uh, years one and three, which implies that, you know, he's going to, again, be a serviceable player, but he's not a top tier player. His receiving yards uh, market share was also around 22%, which, you know, is a pretty significant threshold in that receiving in, in the receiving game for the Georgia Bulldogs. So... When you mix in the fact that he was absent for a big portion of, you know, the, the last couple of years at, at Georgia and yet still has, you know, that likability um, from NFL teams regarding his talent very specifically, I think that this is a really interesting bet to take with the 12th overall pick. And if you can take him here, I think that he's a better bet than anybody else on the board here, whether it's David Bell or John Mechie or Alec Pierce or, or you know, anyone else that you can pick here. Thanks for tuning in today. We've tried to make some sense of the absolute madness and confusion of the player prospects in this draft class. And, you know, there's a lot of different directions you can go. I really believe in the philosophy of talent first, situation second, talent and situation third in that tier order. So if you can get a player that really checks those boxes for you, then go for it and tier your rankings accordingly. But hopefully these numbers provide you some context, provide you some uh, relational you know, understanding of all of the players. And of course, uh, if you liked our content, please make sure to like this video, subscribe to our channel. You can catch me on Twitter at RealAbhiGupta. Thanks for watching today. Let's hit that music.